Well, today is, is Pentecost Sunday. And if you've spent much time at all in the church, uh, you've probably heard some interesting things about Pentecost. Speaking of hearing interesting things, you know, we, um, <laughs> every week we, we live stream our services for those who can't be in the room with us and participate. And then for some strange reason, we take that live stream and we just post it on the internet so that if people want to go back and like listen to sermons, they can do so. There's, there's access for that to happen. I don't know why we do that, but it's something we've always done. So we just keep on doing it. And, uh, you know, we don't have like huge viewership or anything. You know, like n none of us are trying to like be the next Billy Graham or something, but some people find it helpful. So we get maybe a couple hundred hits, you know, a, a week on something like that. <laughs> Never any comments on these videos that get posted, right? But this week I received my first comment and I'm pretty, pretty excited to share it with you. I'm not going to share it in an entire entirety, even though it was very brief. But the comment was this, what? strange and bizarre teachings. <laughs> oh, so hopefully, I mean, it's Pentecost. So like we're bound to get into like the strange and the bizarre. Um, but anyway, I don't know why I shared that with you. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> so it is Pentecost Sunday. And if you have spent any time around the church, you know, this is kind of an odd day that there, are, there have been some interesting and and strange and bizarre things that have been said about Pentecost. The first kind of strange thing that we've heard is that today is the church's birthday. Um, I don't know if you've been lucky enough to be in a church that sings happy birthday to the church on Pentecost Sunday. No show of hands for that. Um, but the danger in understanding Pentecost as merely the church's birthday is that birthdays are one of those like altogether too ordinary things, right? Creatures, human beings, they're birthed at every moment of every day. Something more is happening today. Something more has happened that we are celebrating today. More than just the beginning of something, Pentecost is this celebration that something that until now never existed, something that was not, now is. Now, this isn't to say that the Spirit didn't exist before Pentecost. We can just look to the scriptures to know that that's not true. But something new has happened at Pentecost. But that something, it needs to be identified. It needs to be named when the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples in our Acts 2 reading for the day. This moment is prophesied by Joel, but the Spirit descends, as the prophet said, but the dead are not yet raised, which was anticipated by the prophets, that on the day that the Spirit comes, the dead will be raised. The time for the church then is opened to the world. At this moment where on one hand it was anticipated and then on the other hand it's a little bit disappointing, in that moment the church is opened to the world. So it's not as if there was a community of folks who were gathered around Jesus and the Spirit falls and anoints that community to carry on with their business. That's not what we understand is happening on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is the, it's the ex nihilo it's the out of nothing, something is created. 
It's that action of the third person of the Trinity, not just anointing something that already existed, but initiating something new in the world. The church, us, gathered here, churches gathered all over the world, we are the body of Christ that is birthed by the Holy Spirit, whose mission is that all bodies will be incorporated into this body, the body of Christ. The risen Christ ascends in order to send the Holy Spirit so that by the Spirit, the body of Christ can be birthed into the world. That's the movement of Pentecost. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that Robert Jensen points out, according to scripture, what we are after is the the totus Christus, what he calls the whole Christ, and that the whole Christ is Christ's body, the church, with the risen Jesus as her head. The risen Christ, the whole Christ, is not just Jesus existing in the cosmos. It's Jesus with his church is the whole Christ. This is the body that we belong to as its members. The other thing that we've inevitably heard about Pentecost is not just that it's the church's birthday, but also this idea that Pentecost is the reversal of Babylon, of Babel, rather. Show of hands who've heard that, that Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. Genesis 11 is this story of Babel, and it's the last story that we get before the introduction of Abraham. And what's happened, if you go back and read it, is that human beings, they all have one language. They all have the same words. And they have this recognition that they need to build. They need to build a city. And at the center of the city, a tower that will enable them to control their future. And they say, we have to do this. We must do this. Because if we don't do this, someone will come and take our place from us. So the instinct then is to build in order to protect their future, to preserve themselves, to secure for themselves a kind of security. So they try to build this tower and God stops it. God frustrates it. But notice, this isn't a punishment against the people. God's not punishing them and stopping them. God is, the text says, scattering them. God is seeding them into the world. And the very next thing that happens is that one of those seeds springs up in the life of Abraham. God stops the building of the Tower of Babel, not because God is jealous, not because God is offended or afraid, but God knows that when we build with knowledge but without wisdom, when we try to protect our own future without care and without love for our neighbors, when we act without prayer, notice the people in Babel never give it a prayerful thought. They just say they want to reach the heavens and think that they're gonna secure a kind of future for themselves. But when we act without prayer, we will destroy our humanity. That's the story of Babel. So God stops it, not to punish the people, but to protect them from their own projects. So you fast forward now to the upper room where Peter 
and the other disciples are waiting. And it says that they are gathered and they're waiting. What are they waiting for? They're not waiting for a plan. They're not waiting for a next step. They're waiting, the text says, for the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit falls in tongues of fire. There was this sound that each one heard their own language, the gospel. Pentecost, this moment, the Spirit's working. It's not the reversal of Babel. There's not suddenly one language given back to humanity, shared words and shared understandings. Frank Machia says that the baptism of the Spirit respects and fulfills the scattering and diversification of people from Babel. Otherness is not denied, but embraced in this differentiated and complex unity of the church at Pentecost. Pentecost, in other words, is the fulfillment of Babel. It's not its reversal. Pentecost is not the church's birthday. It's not the simple reversal of a thousands-year-old misdeed. Pentecost is the announcement that Christ's body still roams the earth and does so through you and through me as we're gathered together as the body of Christ, receiving the sacrament of his body and blood. That is what Pentecost is about. Now, what does that mean? The gospel of Pentecost is not that we've been given the power of the Spirit so that we can make the life that we want for ourselves. It's not so that we can live our best life now by the power of the Spirit. It's not you go and do your best and the Spirit is going to do the rest. Again, we've heard some strange and bizarre things. The gospel of Pentecost is that you have been empowered to live your life, to live Christ's life for your neighbor. That's the gospel of Pentecost. The disciples on that day, they're so enraptured, they're so caught up in this moment of worship that the people who are passing by, if you remember the story, the people who are seeing this take place think that they're what? Think they're drunk. And Peter, what does he do? Peter stops his praising. He stops his adoring of God to explain to them what's happening. At the heart of Pentecost is that even when I'm caught up in the raptures of adoring God, when there are others who need to know what's happening, I can leave my gift at the altar and I can turn to them. Because Pentecost is not about me and the spirit. Pentecost is about the work of God in my neighbor's life as I bear witness to it by the power of the spirit. And we, like Peter, we need to be people who know when to stop, when to stop adoring, when to stop considering ourselves as the insiders and everyone else as the outsiders, to stop praising so that we can say to others, this isn't what you think. Wait a minute, do you know what's happening here? There are two groups of people that Peter is addressing. There are those who are drawn to what's happening, who have caught a glimpse of this moment, who hear for themselves in their own language what is taking place. 
And then there are those who are jeering, those who are criticizing what's happening, those who are judgmental of what's happening. And Peter speaks to both of them at the same time without judgment, without condemnation. He doesn't applaud them or celebrate them or criticize them. He just said, let me tell you what this is. And what's happening to them all in that moment is what the prophet Joel prophesied about. He prophesied about how what belongs to God is going to belong to everyone, man and woman, adult and child, slave and free, sons and daughters. Everyone is going to be included in what God has with God. That's how Pentecost turns us. Pentecost doesn't move us away and up, separate from the world. Pentecost turns us out toward the world, into the world. The movement on that day is that the, the disciples who have become apostles are now sent down from the upper room out into the streets. And what happens immediately after this is that they begin to gather together to break bread. They begin to gather together for the prayers. And remember that text, it says, and none of them had any need because they shared what they had. Pentecost doesn't separate them from the world. It sends them out into the world to be the people of God. That movement for us is the same as the movement of the disciples. It's always out. All through Acts, we see this moving out from the upper room, out through Jerusalem, out towards Rome, out to the farthest parts of the world, which is exactly what Jesus told them would happen. And that's the Pentecostal life. That's the life that we're called to. Not a life that's only concerned with this vertical relationship between us and God, but a life when the vertical and the horizontal are shaped as one life. A life where what God is doing in us is immediately shaping us toward those around us. Rowan Williams has said it like this, that the day of Pentecost is about the two most basic facts of the Christian life, adoration and compassion. Adoration in that we are falling in love with Jesus. We are delighting in who God is. And that is who and what we are supposed to be. People who just keep falling in love with Jesus, falling in love with what God is doing and who God is. But it's the kind of adoration that moves us to feeling what our neighbor feels. Compassion is with passion, sharing in their passions and what moves them, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. That is the Christian life. Because we're surrounded all the time by people who are experiencing highs, celebrations, joyous moments and accomplishments, and at the very same time, surrounded by people who are experiencing loss and loneliness and dashed hopes. Sometimes the same people who are experiencing joys in one part of their life are experiencing sadness in another part of their life. This week, I was called up to the hospital to go pray with 
a little boy, he's seven years old, and they found a, a, a mass on his spine and they weren't sure exactly what this thing was. They didn't know uh, if, if this had, had spread to other parts of his body, maybe into his brain. Um, but all they knew is that for about a week now, he hasn't been able to walk. And his vision has also started to get distorted. So they asked me to come up and to pray with him. So I go, I, I bring my, my anointing oil and I lay hands on him. And I'm, I'm joining this family in this moment, right, of confusion, of, of uncertainty, not knowing exactly what the future looks like. Is this, I mean, God forbid, is this cancerous? Is it not cancerous? Is this something that can be remedied? We don't know what the day holds. I pray for him and I look to his dad and he said, hey, do you know what else today is? I said, no, what do you mean? He goes, oh, it's my wife's birthday today. <laughs> Highs and lows celebrations and disappointments, joy and pain, all of it at the same time. As Pentecostals, as the people of God, we are called to bear witness to all of it, to share with both in their passions. Pentecost, the work of the Spirit, makes that kind of solidarity possible. Another note about this, this business of compassion in our gospel text today, there's that odd line where it says, if you forgive others, their sins, they are forgiven. If not, they're not. I, I don't know that I trust the idea that God retains anybody's sins. But later on in the New Testament, we see this text in first John that says, if you see a brother or sister sinning and you ask, they are forgiven. Scripture is saying that your responsibility to your neighbor is not just about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Scripture says your responsibility includes seeing your neighbor's sin and praying for their forgiveness. This is what happens in Abraham. Remember, praying for Sodom's redemption Moses prays for Israel. He says to God, no, forgive them. If you destroy them, destroy me too. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what's happening. This is the heart of the Christian life, to be attuned to people in their weeping, in their rejoicing, and even in their sins against us. And what comes from us is a prayer of forgiveness. God, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That's the kind of responsibility that we have to have, the kind of compassion that we have to respond with. And when the Spirit is present, what comes from us is nothing less than the life of Christ. Again, Christ ascends so that he can send the Spirit and that by the Spirit he can be birthed into the world as the body of Christ. So finally, what is it to be filled by the Spirit? Thomas Aquinas, some 800 years ago, 
was preaching a sermon on Pentecost Sunday. And he said that the Holy Spirit is the hidden origin of all good. The Holy Spirit is the hidden origin of all good. That's what we need to think it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. In the spiritual and in the mundane, the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is the source. The Holy Spirit is the origin of all good. One of our temptations as we think is as moderns, especially Western modern minds, is to think of this separation between the created world and the spiritual world. But early on, the, the church was dealing with this issue and they said, that, that's actually a heresy. It's, it's Gnosticism <laughs> to think that the good only exists in the spiritual and that the created is all bad. The Holy Spirit is the hidden origin of all good. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the created world and in the spiritual world and all of it together. It's not as simple. It's not as easy as, well, this thing over here is good because it's spiritual. And this thing over here is bad because it's not spiritual. In your everyday mundane life, the spirit is at work. We should be open to the weirdness because the scriptures witness to it. Our own lives, if you've been in certain circles, witness to the weirdness, the whole tongues of fire, speaking other languages, words of prophecy, having dreams and visions, all of that stuff is weird. And there are times when the spirit is absolutely at work in the weird. What we shouldn't do is think that the conversation you and I have over coffee is somehow less the work of the spirit. That the simple prayer that you offer to God in a moment of uncertainty or a moment of frustration is somehow less the work of the Spirit than when you're out there praying in tongues. The Spirit is at work as the hidden origin in all things. So what matters is that whatever is going on in my life, the Spirit is at work and often in ways that I can't identify and I don't need to identify. I just trust it. This means that whatever good we experience or we encounter in our lives is always the Spirit's doing, both in our lives and the lives of others. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And we've often thought about it as the fruit that we can grow if we're obedient to the Spirit. But that's not what Paul says. This fruit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This fruit is not the, the, not the fruit that I can conjure up if I'm working alongside the Spirit. This fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. This is how we do not let our hearts be troubled. This is... Wherever we see that fruit, wherever we witness it, whether it's in our lives or the lives of our neighbor, whether it's in the tradition that we're used to or a tradition that we don't understand, whether it's inside the realm of what we consider normative or what our preferences are or not, we can trust the spirit is at work. How? Because the fruit is present. 
The fruit is not the reward of the Spirit. The fruit is promise. I don't have time for this, but here we go. You know, I have friends who grew up in the church, were involved in the church, worked for the church, hurt by the church. And so they've left the church. This is not an uncommon narrative for a lot of people. And mutual friends then have reached out to me and said, hey, listen, you know, what are you thinking about so-and-so? You know, aren't you a little worried that, that they're not in church? And there, I mean, there's part of me. I mean, as a priest, I'm like kind of obligated to say yes. But what I end up saying to them is, well, what kind of fruit are you witnessing in their lives? One of them's a teacher, and he just... Uh, went through this whole process, was almost the teacher of the year for their state, sacrifices for his students, goes above and beyond to care for these high schoolers. The other, she started this, this foundation called the Women's Fund, where she's organizing ways for women to be cared for in the workplace, for women who are victims of abuse to have, have places to go and know what kind of resources they have access to. Good work in the world. Good work in the world. Their children are kind and gentle and compassionate and patient. Their loves are marked by love and generosity. So when people say, aren't you worried about so-and-so? I can say, you know what? I have my preferences on how I think they should organize their lives. But the reality is the spirit is at work. How do I know the spirit's at work? Because the fruit is there. And the fruit is not just us doing good things. The fruit is the promise of the spirit engaged in your life. The spirit is the one pressing us into the better world that we're waiting for. The spirit is the one pressing us into that life of the world to come. And the fruit of the spirit is the fruit that is grown in that better world. It's the fruit of the promised land. You remember that story in Numbers? Moses sends out men to spy out the land that God has promised to them. And he says to them, go up into that hill country. See what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak whether they're few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage, go and bring some of the fruit of the land. So the text says they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness and they came to the valley and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought pomegranates and figs. Listen, we live in a world that is asking, a world that is skeptical about what the world we believe in actually offers them. There are people in the world and they want to know, are the people that live in that kind of world, the kingdom of God, the the life of the world to come, are the people who live there, are they strong or are they weak? Is the land good or is it bad? Or to use Paul's language, 
Does it look like love or hate? Are they people of joy or despair? Are they people of patience or are they, they hurried and rushing? Are they marked, marked by kindness or meanness? By generosity or their greed? Do they speak a gentle word or a harsh word? Do they embody self-control or are they just tossed around by their whims and desires? Go into that land and bring us some of the fruit is what the world is saying. The waiting world wants a glimpse of the fruit of the promised land and they're going to look at your life and mine. And by the spirit, you will be the fruit that the spies carry back into the camp because the spirit is in you. And where the spirit is, the fruit will follow. The spirit is the hidden origin of all good. The spirit is at work in everyone, everywhere, always. So you do not have to be afraid. In 1968, Patriarch Ignatius, he was an Orthodox metropolitan bishop guy. He gave this sermon at the gathering of the World Council of Churches, and he ended his sermon in the same way I'm ending this one today, with this poem that he wrote. He said this, Without the Holy Spirit, God is far away. Christ stays in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simply an organization. Authority, a matter of domination. Mission, a matter of propaganda. Liturgy is only nostalgia. And Christian living, a slave morality. But with the Holy Spirit, God is with us. The universe is resurrected and groans with the birth pangs of the kingdom. The risen Christ is here. The gospel is a living force. The church is a communion in the life of the Trinity, the body of the living Christ. Authority is a service that liberates people. Mission is Pentecost. The liturgy is memory and anticipation and human action is God's work in the world. Amen.